hello everybody. Uh, my name is Salman Muhammad Ahmed Salman. I'm a lead counsel and water law advisor with the legal vice presidency of the World Bank in Washington, D.C. Before joining the World Bank, I worked as a legal officer with the United Nations International Fund for Agricultural Development, IFAD, in Rome, Italy. Prior to that, I taught law at the University of Khartoum Law School. I'm an author of about nine books and have published more than 40 articles and book chapters on water law issues. Some of my books have been translated and published in Arabic, Chinese, French, and Russian languages. I have given lectures and presentations on water law at a number of universities and international conferences. And I was the director of the Center for Studies and Research at the Hague Academy of International Law in 2001 on water resources and international law. Currently, I'm the editor of the World Bank Law Justice and Development Series, and a member of the editorial boards of a number of journals, including Water International and Water Policy. I obtained my LLB from the University of Khartoum in Sudan, and I hold an LLM and a JSD from Yale Law School. I'll be talking to you today about the evolution, codification, and current status of international water law. I'll start with a brief introduction. The United Nations General Assembly adopted on May 21, 1997, the Convention on the Law of the Navigational Uses of International Water Courses. That approval followed about 23 years of extensive preparatory work by the International Law Commission, the ILC, and lengthy deliberations by the Sixth Committee of the General Assembly, as well as the General Assembly itself, that lasted for about three years. Furthermore, the work of the ILC drew from rich literature in the field. A number of declarations and resolutions on international water courses, accompanied by detailed reports, have been adopted by two scholarly non-governmental organizations, the Institute of International Law and the International Law Association. The first such declaration was issued by the Institute in 1911 under the title, International Regulations Regarding the Use of International Water Courses for Purposes Other Than Navigation. This declaration is also known as the Madrid Declaration. This was followed by the Resolution on the Utilization of Non-Maritime International Waters Except for Navigation, also known as the Salzburg Resolution in 1961, and the Resolution on the Pollution of Rivers and Lakes and International Law known as the Athens Resolution in 1979. The work of the Institute centered on the obligation not to cause harm to other riparian states. On the other hand, the ILA, International Association, started working on the international water courses in 1956 when it issued a statement of principles upon which to base rules of law concerning the uses of international rivers. This is also known as the Dobrovnik Statement. The statement was followed in 1958 by the New York Resolution that dealt with the principle of reasonable and equitable sharing of the waters of a drainage basin. This principle was further discussed and elaborated by the 
ILA at the Tokyo meeting in 1964. The work of the ILA culminated in the Helsinki rules on the uses of the waters of international rivers that were issued in 1966 with the concept of equitable and reasonable utilization as the guiding principle. The Helsinki rules were the first comprehensive set of rules dealing with international water courses and have been widely accepted as representing customary international water law. The ILA has issued a number of resolutions and declarations since then, the most recent of which are the Berlin rules. It should, however, be noted that those declarations and resolutions have no binding effect per se. This is because they are neither signed nor ratified by states. Their authoritative guidance stems from the expertise and respectability of the members of both organizations. In addition to the work of the Institute of International Law and the International Law Association, mention must also be made of two conventions adopted under the auspices of the League of Nations. The first is the Convention and Statute on the Regime of Navigable Waterways of International Concern, which is also known as the Barcelona Convention adopted in 1921. This, conventions, this convention deals mainly with issues related to navigation. The second convention is the convention relative to the development of hydraulic power affecting more than one state. It's also known as the Geneva Convention and was adopted in 1923. This convention, as its title indicates, is quite limited in scope. Although both conventions are still in force, they have little if any, legal or practical relevance or usefulness. In parallel to the above, there have been a large number of bilateral and multilateral treaties, as well as judicial and arbitral decisions on international water courses. As such, the ILC had considerable literature on international water courses to draw from, and indeed, it has acknowledged that, as will be discussed later. Discussion of this extensive body of work is beyond the scope of this lecture. Instead, the lecture will concentrate on the UN Water Courses Convention. It will start with discussion of the early work of the UN on international water courses and the preparatory work of the ILC that resulted in the draft convention. The lecture will review the provisions of the convention and examine the influential guidance it has provided, as well as its prospects. The second part of the lecture will deal with the United Nations' early involvement with international water courses. The UN, the UN started paying attention to the issue of international rivers in the late 1950s. In 1959, the UN General Assembly adopted Resolution 1401, which called for initiation of preliminary studies on the legal problems relating to the utilization and use of international rivers with a view to determining whether the subject is appropriate for codification. The resolution requested the Secretary General of the UN to prepare and circulate to the member states a report compromising, uh, one, information provided by member states regarding their laws and legislation in force on the matter, two, a summary of existing bilateral and multilateral treaties, three, a summary of decisions of tribunals, including arbitral awards, and for a survey of studies made by a non-governmental organization concerned with international law.
Consequently, a report entitled Legal Problems Relating to the Utilization and Use of International Rivers was completed and presented to the General Assembly in April 1963. The first part of the report dealt with information provided by member states regarding their legislation on international waters, and the second part dealt with general conventions as well as bilateral and multilateral treaties in Africa, America, and Asia, dealing with international rivers. The report also dealt with international judicial decisions as well as studies carried out by national and international non-governmental organizations. Such studies included the early work carried out by the ILA and the Institute. The report predated the Helsinki rules on international rivers issued by the ILA in 1966, and because of that, there is no mention of the rules in the report. The report was widely circulated, but it took seven more years before the General Assembly would return to the topic of international water courses. On December 8, 1970, the General Assembly adopted Resolution 2669 entitled Progressive Development and Codification of the Rules of International Law Relating to International Water Courses. The resolution referred to the earlier Resolution 1401 of 1959 and to the report that was produced as a result thereof and underscored a number of facts. One, water owing to the growth of population and to the increasing multiplying needs and demands of mankind is of growing concern to humanity. Two, the available freshwater resources of the world are limited. And three, the preservation and protection of those resources are of great concern to all nations. The resolution noted the legal problems relating to the use of international water courses and the fact that such use is still based on rules of customary law. The resolution asked the ILC to take up the study of the law of the non-navigational uses of international water courses with a view to its progressive development and codification. It also requested the Secretary General of the UN to continue the study initiated under Resolution 1401 in order to prepare a supplementary report on the legal problems relating to utilization and use of international water courses. It is worth noting that Resolution 2669 used the term international water courses as opposed to the term international rivers used in Resolution 1401. Indeed, the term international water course is more inclusive than international rivers because it includes lakes and groundwater in addition to rivers. This indicates a clear progress in the global understanding of international waters issues. The third part of the lecture is the work of the International Law Commission. Pursuant to Resolution 2669 of 1970, the ILC started working on the topic of international water courses in early 1971. The task was clearly a complex one. It took 23 years, five rapporteurs, and 15 reports before the final draft articles of the convention were agreed upon by the ILC. A number of issues proved controversial and complex, even for the members of the ILC itself. Such issues including, included definition of the term international water courses, transboundary groundwater, the status of existing water courses agreements vis-a-vis -vis the convention, the relationship between the principle of equitable and reasonable utilization, 
and the obligation not to cause significant harm, and the procedures and mechanism for dispute settlement. Differences on those issues were finally resolved, and a draft convention was agreed upon by the ILC and submitted to the General Assembly in 1994. The draft convention was deliberated thereafter by the Sixth Committee of the UN, that's the legal committee, convened as a working group of the whole. Thereafter, on May 21, 1997, following lengthy discussion of the ILC draft as amended by the working group, the UN General Assembly passed Resolution 51-229, adopting the convention. 103 countries voted for the convention and three against namely Burundi, China, and Turkey, with 27 abstentions, while 52 countries did not participate in the voting. Subsequent to the vote, Nigeria and Fiji, which did not vote, and Belgium, which abstained, informed the Secretariat of the UN General Assembly that they had intended to vote for the convention. This would have brought the number of the countries voting for the convention to 106 and decreased abstentions to 26. The convention was opened for signature on May 21, 1997, and remained open for three years until May 20, 2000. By that time, only 16 states had signed the convention. Although signature closed on May 20, 2000, states can still become parties to the convention by acceding to it. This means that they can have the convention approved or accept it through their constitutional process without having it signed. The convention needs 35 instruments of ratification or accession to enter into force. The convention has not yet com com command sufficient ratification to enter into force. As of April 2008, it has only been ratified or acceded to by 16 states, a number far short of that required under the convention. I will now move to the fourth part of my lecture, and it's an overview of the provisions of the Convention. The Convention is based largely on the ILA work, particularly the Helsinki Rules, which were issued by the ILA in 1966, and to some extent on the work of the Institute. The Convention itself recognizes the valuable contribution of international organizations, both governmental and non-governmental, to the codification and progressive development of international law in this field. The Convention also recalled the existing bilateral and multilateral agreements regarding the non-navigation uses of international water courses. The Convention is a framework convention that aims at ensuring that utilization, development, conservation, management, and protection of international water courses and promoting optimal and sustainable utilizations thereof for present and future generations. As a framework convention, it addresses some basic procedural aspects and few substantive ones and leaves the details for the riparian states to complement in agreements that would take into account the specific characteristics of the water course in question. Such agreements can adopt or adjust the provisions of the convention. The Convention is divided into seven parts and consists of 37 articles. In addition, it includes an annex on arbitration that consists of 14 articles. The main areas that the Convention addresses include the definition of the term watercourse, 
water course agreements, equitable and reasonable utilization, and the obligation not to cause harm, notification for planned measures, protection, preservation, and management, and dispute settlement. Article 1-2 of the Convention asserts that the uses of international water courses for navigation are not within the scope of the Convention, except insofar as other uses affect navigation or are affected by navigation. It should be noted, however, that Article 10 of the Convention states that in the absence of an agreement or custom to the contrary, no use of an international water course enjoys inherent priority over other uses. Although it does not mention any specific uses, the article is understood to indicate that navigational uses, which had superior status during the 19th and early 20th century, no longer enjoy inherent priority over non-navigational uses. The article goes further and requires that in the event of a conflict between uses of international water courses, due regard should be given to, to the requirement of vital human needs. A statement of understanding issued by the working group clarified that in determining vital human needs, special attention is to be paid to providing sufficient water to sustain human life, including both drinking water and water required for production of food in order to prevent starvation. Article 10 has been used together with other similar provisions in other international legal instruments by a number of authors in the field to support the notion of a human right to water. The convention defines the term international water courses to mean a water course, parts of which are situated in different states. It defines the term water course to include both surface water and ground waters constituting by virtue of their physical relationship a unitary whole and normally flowing into a common terminus. This definition includes only groundwater that's connected to surface water. It does not include transboundary aquifers that do not contribute water to or receive water from surface water. Realizing this lacuna, the ILC issued a separate resolution recommending that other types of groundwater be governed by the same rules laid down in the convention. Water course agreements are dealt with in Article 3 of the Convention. The article indicates that the Convention shall not affect the rights or obligations of water course states arising from agreements that are in force. However, the article asks the parties to consider, where necessary, harmonizing such agreements with the pr basic principles of the Convention. Article 3 also allows water course states to enter into agreements which apply and adjust the provisions of the Convention to the characteristics and uses of a particular international water course. Furthermore, the article states that when some, but not all, water course states to a particular international water course are parties to an international agreement, nothing in such an agreement would affect the rights or obligations under the Convention of water course states that are not parties to such an agreement. Thus, the Convention attempts to reconcile the rights of states to enter into agreements and the equality in the right of the riparian states over the shared water course. The Convention embraces the principle of equitable and reasonable utilization and lays down in Article 6 certain factors and circumstances that should be taken into account for determining 
such equitable and, and reasonable utilization. Article 6.1 of the Convention states that utilization of an international water course in an equitable and reasonable manner within the meaning of Article 5 requires taking into account all relevant factors and circumstances, including 1. Geographic, hydrographic, hydrological, climatic, ecological, and other factors of a natural character. 2. The social and economic needs of the water course states concerned. 3. The population dependent on the water course in the water course state. 4. The effect of the use or uses of the water course in one water course state or other water course states. 5. Existing and potential uses of the water course. 6. Conservation, protection, development, and economy of the water resources of the water course and the cost of measures taken to that effect. And Six, the availability of alternatives of comparable value to a particular plant or existing use. In this connection, the convention follows the same approach adopted 30 years earlier by the Helsinki Rules, which established the principle of equitable and reasonable utilization as the guiding principle for international water law and laid down certain factors for determining such equitable utilization. In comparing the above factors with the factors under the Helsinki Rules, it can be concluded that the factors under the UN Convention are based largely on those of the Helsinki Rules. In line with Article 5 of the Helsinki Rules, Article 6 of the Convention states that the weight to be given to each factor is to be determined by its importance in comparison with that of other relevant factors. The Convention also deals in Article 7 with the, with the obligation not to cause significant harm and requires the water course states to, to take all appropriate measures to prevent the causing of significant harm to other water course states. Agreement on which rule ta takes priority over the other proved quite difficult, and the issue occupied the ILC throughout its work on the Convention. Each rapporteur dealt with the matter differently, equating the two principles or subordinating one principle to the other. The issue was discussed in the working group where sharp differences between the riparian states on those two principles surfaced. It is worth clarifying in this connection that lower riparians tend to favor the no-harm rule as it protects existing uses against impacts resulting from activities undertaken by upstream riparian. Conversely, upper riparians tend to favor the principle of equitable and reasonable utilization because it provides more scope for states to utilize their share of the water course for activities that may impact on downstream states. After a lengthy debate within the working group, a compromise regarding the relationship between the two principles was reached. The compromise addressed Article 5 and 6 on equitable and reasonable utilization and Article 7 on the obligation not to cause harm. The new language of Article 7 requires the states that causes significant harm to take measures to eliminate or mitigate such harm, having due regard to Articles 5 and 6, which deal with the principle of equitable and reasonable utilization. The new formula was inter interpreted by a number of lower riparians as not to suggest subordination of the no harm rule to the principle of equitable and reasonable utilization. On the other hand, 
a number of upper riparians thought that the formula was strong enough to support the idea of such subordination. Although the compromise facilitated adoption of the convention by the UN General Assembly, second thoughts about this compromise start surfacing in the minds of many states. No doubt, the compromise is now a major factor in the delay of the ratification of the convention by some states. However, notwithstanding, notwithstanding this compromise language, the prevailing view is that the convention has subordinated the obligation not to cause significant harm to the principle of equitable and reasonable utilization. This conclusion is based on a close reading of Articles 5, 6, and 7 of the Convention. Article 6 enumerates a number of factors for determining equitable and reasonable utilization. Those factors include, one, the effects of the use or uses of the water course in one water course state or other water course states, and two, existing and potential uses of the water course. Those same factors will also need to be used with other factors to determine whether significant harm is caused to another riparian because harm can be caused by depriving other riparians of the water flow and thereby affecting their existing uses. Moreover, Article 7.1 of the Convention obliges water course states when utilizing an international water course in their territory to take all appropriate measures to prevent the causing of significant harm to other water course states. When significant harm nevertheless is caused to another water course state, then Article 7.2 of the Convention requires the state causing the harm to take all appropriate measures having due regard to Articles 5 and 6 in consultation with the affected states to eliminate or mitigate such harm and where appropriate to discuss the question of compensation. As noted before, Article 5 of 6 of the Convention deal with equitable and reasonable utilization. As such, Article 7.2 requires giving due regard to the principle of equitable and reasonable utilization when significant harm has nevertheless been caused to another water course state. The paragraph also indicates that the causing of harm may be tolerated in certain cases, such as when the possibility of compensation may be considered. Accordingly, a careful reading of Articles 5, 6, and 7 of the Convention should lead to the conclusion that the obligation not to cause harm has indeed been subordinated to the principle of equitable and reasonable utilization. Hence, it can be concluded that, similar to the Helsinki rules, the principle of equitable and reasonable utilization is the fundamental and guiding principle of the UN Water Courses Convention. This view has been endorsed by the International Court of Justice in the Danube case between Hungary and Slovakia, the Gabčikovo Nagy Maurus case. The case was decided in September 1997, only four months after the convention was adopted by the UN General Assembly. In that case, the court emphasized the concept of equitable and reasonable utilization when it directed that the multi-purpose program in the form of a coordinating single unit for the use development and protection of the water course is implemented in an equitable and reasonable manner. The court did not refer to the obligation not to cause harm. Other basic obligations under convention include the obligation to cooperate through inter alia, the establishment of joint mechanisms or commissions, and the regular exchange of data and information, 
and through notification of other riparian states and not just downstream riparians of planned measures with possible significant adverse effects. Planned measures or projects are dealt with in part three of the convention. This is the longest part of the convention and includes nine articles that address a number of aspects related to notification of other riparians or planned measures that may cause significant adverse effects. Those aspects include the period for reply, obligations of the notifying state during the period of reply, reply for notification and absence of reply, consultations and negotiations concerning planned measures, procedures in the absence of notification, and urgent implementation of planned measures. Environmental protection of international water courses is dealt with under part four, articles 20 to 26 of the convention, entitled Protection, Preservation, and Management of International Water Courses. This part establishes a number of obligations on the water course states, including protection and preservation of ecosystems, prevention, reduction, and control of pollution, introduction of alien or new species, and protection and preservation of the marine environment. A statement of understanding issued by the working group clarified that those articles impose a due diligence standard on water course states. Article 33 of the, of the, and the annex to the convention deal with dispute settlement mechanisms and procedures. The article lays down a number of methods for settlement of disputes, uh, including negotiations, jointly seeking the good offices of or mediation and conciliation by a third party, or use of joint water course institutions, or submission of the dispute to arbitration or to the International Court of Justice. However, the method for settlement of a particular dispute should be agreed upon by the parties themselves. The only obligation, obligatory method set forth in the convention is impartial fact-finding. Although Article 33 lays down detailed procedure for such fact-finding, it only requires the parties to consider the report of the fact-finding commission in good faith. Similarly, the convention provides the parties with the option to submit their dispute for arbitration in accordance with detailed rules laid down in the annex to the convention or to the International Court of Justice. Again, this is not obligatory, but merely an option. This overview indicates that the convention is basically a framework convention which lays down basic principles and procedures, leaving the details to the water course states to complement in agreements that take into account the, char the characteristics of their specific water course. And I will now move on to the status and influence of the convention. More than 11 years after its adoption by a majority of exceeding 100 states, the Convention has not yet obtained the necessary number of instruments for ratification or accession to enable it to enter into force. As mentioned earlier, as of April 2008, only 16 states are parties to the Convention. The process of ratification of the Convention has been extremely slow. This is due to a number of factors, including sensitivities surrounding shared water courses, and also to misunderstandings of some of the provisions of the Convention particularly with regard to sovereignty over shared water courses. 
as mentioned before, the relationship between the principle of equitable and reasonable utilization and the obligation not to cause harm is one, is one example of such misunderstandings. However, even if the Convention does not receive the necessary number of instruments of ratification and accession that would enable it to enter into force and effect, the Convention has already manifested considerable influence on multilateral and bilateral water treaties. It has also been endorsed by a number of international entities as well as by International Court of Justice. The 14 Southern African Development Community member countries, known as SADAC, revised their 1995 protocol on shared water course systems in 2000 to make it consistent with the provisions of the Convention. Indeed, most of the articles of the revised protocol on shared water courses in the Southern African Development Community are a copy of the articles of the Convention. The protocol refers in its preamble to the progress with the development and codification of international water law initiated by the Helsinki Rules and followed by the adoption of the United Nations Convention. The Protocol for Sustainable Development of Lake Victoria Basin, adopted in 2003, and the Agreement on the Establishment of the, of the Zimbizi Water Course Commission, adopted in 2004, like the SADAC Protocol, both include the same factors for determining equitable and reasonable utilization, as well as provisions for notification regarding planned measures similar to those of the Convention. The influence and relevance of the Watercourse Convention has also been underscored by the International Court of Justice in the Danube case referred to above. In addition to endorsing the principle of equitable and reasonable utilization, the court confirmed the perfect equality of all riparian states in the uses of the whole course of the river and the exclusion of any preferential privilege of one riparian state in relation to the others. The court further noticed that modern development of international law has strengthened this principle for non-navigational uses of international water courses as evidenced by the adoption of the Convention of 21st May 1997 on the law of the non-navigational uses of international water courses by the United Nations General Assembly. It should be added that the Convention has been endorsed by a number of international entities. The World Commission on Dams indicated that the principles embodied in the 1997 UN Convention on the law of the non-navigational uses of international water courses warrant support. States should make every effort to ratify the Convention and bring it into force. The World Water Council described the provisions of, of the Convention as sensible and concluded that, sadly enough, even after all the time it took to prepare the Convention, it now seems unlikely that this Convention will be ratified by enough countries to enter into force. Although the World Commission for Water in the 21st century referred to the Convention as weak, the Commission added that Surely, weak as it is, the Convention deserves to be approved, if only as a fair step towards a greater appreciation of the international character of water. The ILA, in its Helsinki conference held in August 1996, adopted a, re a resolution on the then draft UN Water Courses Convention. The resolution took note, with satisfaction of the completion of the work of the United Nations International Law Commission on the topic of the non navigational uses of international water courses.
courses. It also took note with satisfaction of the General Assembly resolution convening the Sixth Committee as a working group of the whole to elaborate a convention on the basis of the ILC draft. Moreover, a number of experts considered the basic principles laid out in the convention, such as the principle of equitable and reasonable utilization, the obligation not to cause harm, notification and exchange of data and information, and the provisions regarding protection of the environment as reflecting the basic principles of customer international law. Thus, one concludes by stating that even if the convention does not enter into force, it has received broad endorsements and it is widely agreed that it reflects and embodies the basic principles of customary international water law. Thank you very much.